Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Lord, we do want to see this house of the Lord continue to be maintained. We thank you for all that has been done over many years. The faithful work and giving of your people that allow it to be used creatively for our community. The craft fair will be in June once again and another opportunity just to have the place open and be a place where others can gather. Where we have that flexibility of worship that we experienced last Sunday and over Easter. When we can gather and have a meal in it or a daffodil tea or an Advent supper. But Lord, we are also aware that that does cost money and involves maintenance. And so we do pray for our managers as they gather together tomorrow evening that you would continue to lead and guide us, that we might be good stewards of the resources you have given us, not just in terms of the money in the bank, but in terms of the building that we have been blessed with. And that we would continue to have that mission focus in all that we do, We're doing it, yes, for your glory and for your kingdom purposes. And so we do commend our managers. We thank you for them. And we ask that you would bless them and guide them and lead them as we deal with these matters. We thank you for the opportunities to gather in fellowship as a church. We thank you for the opportunity this week to go to Croft Bank House to sing songs and hymns that the older people will remember and be able to recall. And to be able very simply to tell the stories of Jesus. And we ask, O Holy Spirit, you would continue to use that to minister your word of grace and hope and life into people's circumstances. And into perhaps people who outwardly don't appear to be able to communicate very much. And yet when they hear a hymn or a song that they're familiar with, you can see, Lord, the stirring of things within them. In their minds, memories and also an awareness of your presence. We do pray for special things coming up. We thank you for Nathan and for his ministry or your ministry through him in Kilmore's. We thank you for the encouragements of people being drawn there, of the recent renovations of their church building, of the new partnership with the fellowship at Abdeer, with Paul, the co-worker who is ministering in the east end of Kilmarnock, a very rough, very needy part of that town which is just literally over some fields from Kilmore's. We do pray a blessing even as they meet there together this morning. Oh, Holy Spirit, come afresh amongst your people there and continue to do your kingdom work in and through that fellowship. We thank you for opportunities at different times to gather with others in worship and fellowship. For those who gathered last Sunday night in the Royal Concert Hall for the Easter celebration and for the opportunity in June to do something similar commend these opportunities. Lord, we ask that as we join together as the people of God from our different traditions, from our different backgrounds, we thank you that we are indeed all one in Christ Jesus. And so we commend you, these intimations, these pieces of information. Lord, it's not just words on a piece of paper. It's an expression of our life together as a church family and of our purposes, your purposes for us. And we ask that you would continue to give us ears to hear and hearts and minds open and ready to respond to all that you would say to us as we listen now to your word, the word of God. Come, O Holy Spirit, and speak into our lives, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So if you'd like to turn to Luke's Gospel, 
the gospel according to St. Luke. And we're really picking up, actually, a wee bit from where we left off last week. We're picking up in Luke chapter 24, and we're going to read from verse 36. And in between that, and if you haven't read the story before, then maybe read it when you get home. The two men walking back to the road of Emmaus who were lamenting about the fact that they felt that they were, in a sense, had been mugs, that they had trusted, they had believed that this Jesus, uh, we had hoped, verse 21 of that chapter, we'd hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. Um, and there was a spirit of weariness and concern of emptiness. Um, and, and Jesus appears with them and journeys with them. And, and begins to explain to them from Moses and the prophets, verse 27. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh, I'll just pick up from there. And as they approached, verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he broke bread and gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, that is Jesus Christ, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found their living and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And they said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they, still did, while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Until last week, a week past, if I had mentioned before you two names of two women, a younger girl and a, and a girl just in her 20s, a Lyra McKee or a Greta Thunberg, or Thunberg, however you pronounce it, you wouldn't have had a clue as to who these people were. 
And yet, over the past week, 10 days, they've become almost global news. Lyra was the journalist in Ireland, in Londonderry. Notice I say Londonderry, not Derry. Um, in Londonderry, when um, she was shot by, I think, probably a stray bullet, but nonetheless, a bullet fired by a Republican distant group, and she was killed. And last week at her funeral service, if you saw it on television, a united service between the Roman Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition in Northern Ireland, the, the priest, one of the priests who was leading the service, um, with the, the, the politicians gathered at the front, and in particular with the leader, Irene Foster, the leader of the DUP, and the lady whose name has gone out of my mind, who's the leader of Sinn Féin, um, the two of them sitting beside each other, he quite rightly challenged them that the death of this woman should stir them to begin to work together. Because maybe you're not aware of this, but their devolved parliament and Stormont has not functioned for about two years because they fell out and, and, and weren't willing to work together again. And, and you could see there was a round of applause from the audience, from the congregation. Um, I, I did notice that Irene Foster, the DUP, was somewhat reluctant to get to her feet and join the applause, but she eventually did. Peer pressure forced her to stand along with her Sinn Féin um, colleague, inverted commas, colleague, um, and, and they are starting to meet. Her death, this death of this journalist, it is hoped, will have provoked and stirred a lasting change in the circumstances in Northern Ireland. And Greta, well, she herself says that she's a 60-year-old um, girl who suffers from a degree of Asperger's or autism. She has pioneered, so we're told, so we believe, um, a campaign to waken up older people, i.e. most of us, um, to the challenges of climate change. And certainly it's true that it's harder as our children's generation that are going to be facing the consequences of a world where climatic control will go out of sync and there will be consequences for that. The Bible's quite right when it tells us that creation is groaning, waiting for its day of deliverance. And she has led a campaign. She's, been, she's met the Pope. She's toured over Europe and been in London over the past week. Two girls, two women, and no disrespect to either of them, non-entities in normal life, and yet have become well-known. One whose death could bring about great reconciliation, one whose life and vision and passion and enthusiasm and youthful concern might stir some change. This is thought amongst those who have some influence over the whole issue of climate change. I'm an old cynic now in my 50s, middle-aged cynic, and I have to say time will tell. How many names of worthy people have been mentioned over the years, indeed over the centuries, as people whose life or whose death was going to make a major impact on our society, upon our world, upon the conditions of ordinary people? How many did that and how many names now are long forgotten about and whose campaigns and mission goals and ambitions and desires have like them missed in the morning disappeared as the rise of the sun of history has dispersed their hopes and aspirations. And it's important for us to realize that there were many people, including perhaps some of the disciples, who would have thought that about Jesus. 
in the first century. Sadly, commentators, Josephus, the Jewish historian of that period, records the appearance of Jesus, his impact, and indeed hints at his resurrection, but regards it simply as at best a Jewish sect that was going to maybe challenge or provoke or tart up the Jewish faith, but actually at the end of the day would just be yet another sect of a few odd folk who would gather together in some kind of commune and, well, would be forgotten about in the time, in the mists of history. Tacitus, the Roman historian for that period, he too records the appearance of Jesus. He quite specifically makes notice or notes of the story about the resurrection of Jesus, but he too gives no hint, no hint at all. It didn't cross his mind by all, by all recordings of what he says that this Jesus or this Jesus movement was going to have a fundamental impact on the Roman Empire. He couldn't possibly have imagined that eventually, a couple of centuries later, the Roman Emperor himself, Constantine, was to be converted to Christianity. Luke, writing his gospel, and we've seen this as we refer to this past, is keen that the hearers of his gospel see this Jesus as not a flash in the pan. It's not just something that came for a season and then disappeared. Remember what he writes at the beginning of his gospel. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Look, like all the gospel writers, has gathered together this account to this non-Jewish person, Theophilus, a Greco-Roman person, so that he would know, so that others might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And indeed, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. And indeed, if you want, just to flick on to the beginning of the book of Acts, he picks up on that theme that he's recording something that he certainly believes is dynamic and going to have an impact on time and on the world. The beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter 1, he writes, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And yet for the disciples, for the two men on the road to Emmaus, the death of Jesus and the rumor of his resurrection all just appeared as if, well, is this the end of the road? We had hoped, the men in the road to Emmaus said, we had hoped that this man, this one that they had followed, was going to be the Redeemer of Israel. And yet Luke, and indeed all the gospel writers, Matthew, 
and Mark to degree. Mark's gospel finishes quite quickly. There is a bit, if you have a Bible, you'll notice there is a bit at the end of Mark's gospel, which is in parenthesis, uh, either brackets round about it, because most people wouldn't regard it as being a religiously written by Mark at the time of the writing of the gospel, but as a later addition. Mark's gospel finishes quite briefly, but Matthew and Luke and John all spend time reflecting on what happened after Easter Sunday. And they're all doing that in order to help the readers, the heroes of the Word then, and us today, to realize just what an impact the resurrection of Jesus Christ really had on the disciples, primarily on the disciples. These men who had been cowards, these men who felt bad, and notice I say the men, because the women, I have to say, get a better press in the story. These men who had let Jesus down, these men who thought that Jesus was going to be the goal for Israel, now felt empty inside. These men who in many ways were a bunch of failures locked in that upper room for fear of the Jewish authorities, these men were transformed. And how do we know that? Well, apart from anything else, you and I are sitting here in the church this morning and throughout the world, a third of the world's population would claim today to be Christian. It wasn't a flash in the pan. It wasn't just for a season. It wasn't a false start. It wasn't a well-intentioned beginning that never got anywhere. It has been a global, historical life changer. And it all flows out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice, back to the passage we read, while they were talking about all that had been happening, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. The gospel writers are very honest about what's going on here. You know, they're not all sitting there saying, oh, Jesus, we're just waiting for you. You know, we knew this was going to happen and everything else. They were not like that. They were like us, filled with all sorts of doubts and questions. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Basically, he had a fish supper. And what is Jesus doing here? Well, first of all, I've mentioned this often before. It's funny, isn't it, in one sense, when he stood before these people and said, peace be with you. If that had been you or me appearing to this bunch of folk who were supposed to be my friends and had done all the things they'd done, you'd be saying, well, first of all, you'd be knocking a few heads together. You'd be giving Peter what for. You'd be chiving up some of the rest of them and said, well, what's all this, you know? You all said that you were going to be here, there, and everywhere for me, and look at you. You're a right bunch of characters. And yet he doesn't do that. Frail and fallen and fragile as the disciples and as we are when Jesus comes before us. What does he do? Showing them his hands and his feet. He speaks to them and he brings to them the very peace of God. And that word peace, shalom, is far more than the absence of angst or war or fear. It's that word that speaks of harmony, of wholeness, of unity, of a sense of being where we're meant to be with those we're meant to be with, shallow. And that's what Jesus brings 
to these disciples. Peace, that kind of peace with God. And the showing of his hands and his feet still with their marks in them. And the eating of the fish, not sure that particularly Jesus was hungry in that kind of way, and yet also the fact that he could appear and disappear, all of that speaks that, yes, this is Jesus, the one they had loved, the one they had followed, the one they had heard, the one they had responded to, but this is Jesus now in a way beyond the, the, the material way that they had known him in the past. The risen, conquering Son. His hands and his feet bear witness to how he secures peace with God. And how does he do that? Well, remember Paul tells us in Ephesians that Jesus Christ is our peacemaker. He bore, Paul says in Ephesians 2, he bore upon himself the hostility, the hostility of a holy God against a sinful fallen, fractured humanity, and yes, the hostility that exists because of that between people, he bore that hostility upon himself on that tree. Jesus brings us peace because he entered into that place of forsakenness, that place of strife, that place of pain and of sorrow, of darkness and of death. He's the one who brings us that peace with God. And you see, my friends, we need to remember that. That fundamental peace can only be brought by God. Yes, for a season in Northern Ireland, there will be peace. But, my friends, there are deep-rooted animosities there that no amount of well-intentioned hard work or the sacrifice of a journalist will actually be able to deal with. Yes, we can all turn down our gas heaters and boilers. Yes, we can stop using smelly and dirty cars. We can do a whole host of things. But those of you who are in China just quite recently, they're not going to stop polluting the atmosphere. Why should they? We got in first. We've done our bit. It's their turn. And as I was hearing from Leslie and from Stuart, belching out all sorts of stuff into the rivers and into the skies, they're not going to give that up. Human effort, human desires, human dreams, human work can achieve much. But only the risen, conquering Son can bring lasting peace and restoration and hope into our lives and our world. Let's sing of that now. As we sing a song, we'll hear the tune. It's not a you song by any means, but we'll hear the tune. And then we'll stand to sing it. And so Jesus brings into that conflicted situation. You can imagine the tensions between the different disciples as well. That place of failure. Jesus brings that peace that he alone can bring, for he alone has secured it through his body broken and his blood shed. And then he says to them, in verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. You can almost see the hint there. Oh, I did tell you this, but you weren't listening. 
Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures, and he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead in the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now, if the word peace that's used here is important to understand, that shalom, that shalom of God, which is radically different from just the absence of hostility and conflict, so the word witness is very important here. It was a very much a legal word. For all the faults and the failings of the Roman Empire, it had brought in a degree of peace, in a sense, and had brought in a degree of law and order. Indeed, many of our legal system today is derived from that Roman system. And so, if you are called to be a witness at a trial, and they did have courts, and they did have a legal process, if you were called to be a witness at a trial, first of all, it wasn't something you couldn't just phone up and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to my holidays to Ibiza next week, can you let me off? Um, the same way as you can't do that nowadays, so you can do that in the Roman era. You were called, it was your civic duty. If you were a citizen of the empire, it was your civic duty to give a witness at a trial of one of your fellow citizens. I have to say, of course, legal processes only apply to the citizens. <laughs> to the rest of them, the peasants, well, they just didn't make the best of it. But if you were a citizen, you were afforded legal rights, and you had to go, you had to give witness. And what were you to do? Well, you were to simply say what you had seen and heard and you, like today. You weren't to, there was to be no conjecture, there was to be no speculation, there certainly was to be no attempt to make things up or add to or take away from what you'd seen and heard. You were simply to be a witness to what you'd seen and heard and known as a fact. And Jesus here is saying to the disciples, you are witnesses in that legal way. You are to bear witness to what you've seen, what you've heard, and what you've known. And that evidence is to be based primarily, notice here, it's to be primarily based on how I have fulfilled what the Bible, what the Old Testament has said about me. Notice how he emphasizes that. He did that with the men on the road to Emmaus. In verse 25, put my specs back on, I'll tell you what number it is. I think it's verse 25. Aye, so it is. In verse 25, he says, How foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things that enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He's doing the same with the disciples here. This is what I told you. Everything must be fulfilled. Verse 44, that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead in the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Interesting, Paul, we made reference to this last Sunday, when Paul gives that great account almost a, a, again, it's worded in a kind of almost legal way um, in Corinthians. He makes it clear that what he's recording, what he's speaking about, is in accordance with the Scriptures. 
for what I received. First Corinthians 15, 3, I passed unto you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. They were witnesses. They bore witness to what they had seen and what they had heard. And Matthew, in his great commission, makes that clear. If you want to turn to Matthew 28, the end of his gospel account. Matthew picks up really just prior to the ascension of Jesus Christ. And these well-known verses, the 11 disciples go to Galilee, to the mountain, where verse 16 of chapter 28, where Jesus had told them to go, they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There were still things that were working through. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What's often known as the Great Commission, given to the leaders of the church, to the, apost to the disciples soon to be apostles. And they were to go. Notice what it says. They're not to go to make converts. They're not to go to make converts. My friends, it's the Holy Spirit that makes converts, that turns people, sometimes very dramatically. I was hearing of one this morning, your father-in-law, from one Sunday to the next, from being an atheist to being a fervent believer, converted. How did that happen? By the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's our job to disciple, to teach, to train, to equip, to lead people on to a knowledge of the one who's revealed himself to them and called them to himself. Our job is to disciple. And we can only do that. We can only train someone else. And we ourselves are equipped to know what we're talking about. Let's be honest, if it, it becomes pretty obvious if we didn't have a clue. I mean, my son Gregor has got another person working with him at the moment. It's Gregor's job to train them up and to, to teach them and to give them insight into the very high-tech laser work that they're dealing with. And, and I know Gregor can give a good talk, you know, and he can certainly, you know, charm the birds out of the trees. But very quickly, if he didn't know what he was talking about, it become obvious. We ourselves are to know in whom we have believed, in order that we ourselves can bear witness to that, in order that we ourselves can disciple those who have professed faith in him. That's the calling of the church. And back in Luke, Jesus makes that clear that that is their job. But not just their job. Not just their job. It's the job of God's people. I know and, and I appreciate flicking about can be a wearying in our Bibles, but I'm going to turn you to John's Gospel now, because it is, they're all interconnected. And to the resurrection accounts in John's Gospel. John chapter 20. And in John, reflecting on what happens, John chapter 20, and Jesus appears Verse 19, he appears with the disciples on the first day of the week 
And they were told they're locked in for fear of the Jews. And Jesus stands among them and says, peace be with you. And again, he shows them his hands and his side, the ample evidence of how that peace comes about. And then he says in verse 22, he breathes on them. Well, first of all, no, verse 21, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Notice right at the very beginning, that message of sins forgiven is there. It's at the heart of what the good news is all about. And then number Thomas appears. Well, I won't believe it unless I see it for myself. In verse 26, a week later, his disciples are in the house again, and Thomas is with them. The doors are locked. Jesus came and stands among them and says, Peace be with you. And when he, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told them, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Do you know this morning you're one of the blessed? We don't see Jesus physically standing among us with the marks of his passion, but we have believed. How is that possible? Because the Holy Spirit has done what his ministry is, which is to take from Jesus and make him known to us. We may not have seen with our physical eyes, but we've seen with the eyes of faith. We've seen the Lord and we've fallen at his feet. We've recognized that those, hand, those hands, those nails that pierced his hands and the feet were done for us. We were there when they crucified my Lord. We've known that our sins need to be forgiven. The Holy Spirit convicts and convinces and converts, and He has done His job. And we have seen Jesus, not in the flesh, but we have believed and we're blessed. And John goes on to say, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. We have a new purpose, a new identity, a new calling to be those through whom the Holy Spirit works and others see Jesus and become his followers. And that is the calling of every single one of us here this morning. So tomorrow morning, when you meet your neighbors, or you go about your business, or you're at work, your work, yes, you're a teacher or a retired teacher, or a lawyer, or a doctor, or an accountant, or, or whoever. But you're a follower of Jesus first and foremost. You're a witness of these things. That's why you were here this morning. And our calling is to bear witness. It's not, a, it's not an option. It's a duty of the citizen of the kingdom of God. That in our life, and in our living, we bear witness, not, as I unfortunately had to hear from another clergyman a few weeks ago, well, that's just your opinion. It's not just my opinion. We bear witness to what God's Word has said about God's Son and about the purposes of His coming. Let's sing together. Time is going. Let's sing together. 250 is the mission praise. How shall they hear who have not heard? Use of a Lord who loved and came, nor known his reconciling word, nor learned to trust 
our Saviour's name will stand too. We finished last Sunday, I made reference to the previous week, the fire at Notre Dame and the interview of Cardinal Nichols um, of the Roman Catholic Church, Westminster Cathedral, and of how he'd very clearly spoken of, of the, the fact when the interviewer had said to him, well, that's a disaster based on the cathedral getting set in fire. He said, oh, but he says, that's at the very heart of the Easter story, remember? And he said, from the seeming disaster of Good Friday, or the, this seeming disaster of Good Friday is transformed, he said, by the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church at Pentecost. Notice he tied that in the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church at Pentecost. Look at what Luke says. I'm going to your witnesses of these things, verse 48. But then he says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Now, John has told us that already that Jesus has breathed the Holy Spirit on them. The Holy Spirit was needed even from the very beginning so that they could begin to understand what Jesus had to say about the Bible. He is at work. The Holy Spirit is already at work within the disciples, helping them, enabling them to understand that when Jesus opens the Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets, the, the, the law of Moses and the Psalms, they are able to take that in. If the Holy Spirit wasn't at work, it would be nonsense to them. You know, one of the first signs of God at work in someone's life is actually what appears foolishness and nonsense when they're just a punter going about the place start actually to make, begins to make sense. And things like bits of jigsaw start falling into place. And you think, oh, right. Well, now, now I know what that means. That is a sign, ample sign, an evident sign of the Holy Spirit at work within someone's life. And I know that there are people here this morning who can bear witness to that. That's his work, making sense of all. But God does immeasurably more than we ever ask and imagine. It's not just to make sense to us. The Holy Spirit is to be sent, Jesus says now, to there to be empowered from on high so that he can go on our own. We would be like the disciples. Mugs, cowards feeling empty, having let him down. But the Holy Spirit, the power from an eye, comes and he fills us, as Paul tells us in the very same book in Ephesians, he fills us with the same power that brought Jesus Christ from the dead. That same power comes to stamp its seal of ownership in our lives and to fill us with that presence. If God can do that, bringing his Son from the grave, do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine. Jesus gives them a promise of power. And my friends, we all need to plug into that. Or else, like a plenty of well-intentioned good intention people in the past. What we say, what we do, how hard we work will have no lasting, life-changing impact on history. But in 
empowered, anointed, and equipped by the Spirit of God in all things are possible to those who believe. You know, one of the greatest joys for any believer should be when we're in glory. We had a funeral service here on Thursday. Evan, or Pauline's grandfather, very faithful servant of the Lord. He told me when I saw him in hospital just a couple of weeks ago, very frail in body, still very alert of mind. But he told me he'd only just heard, just within the last year of, of a gentleman of ages with, with, with Peter, well into his 80s, they had been, Peter had been called into national service after the war, and he and his brother had started a wee Bible study group because they got slagged off. Anybody who tells you that things were wonderful back in the 1940s and 50s, that's just a load of nonsense. No, you're right, quite right, it wasn't. And they got slagged off, and all worse than that, by a lot of the other guys in the camp. But one of them, the guy in the next bed, and you can imagine these, what these places were like, turned to him and said, I effing left effing home so that I didn't have to effing spend time with another effing Christian. So, wasn't it all wonderful? But they started a wee Bible study. And one or two guys came along, one or two Christians came along, and one or two people, and, 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 and then they all moved camp and never. Just in the last year, he got an email from a gentleman, again in his 80s. He said, are you the Peter Boom that was you know, in the RAF squad and blah, blah, blah? Oh, yes. He said, you know, he said, I just want to tell you. He said, through that wee Bible study group, I met with Jesus. And I went on with my life, and I got married, and had a family, and everything else, you know. But I met with Jesus. Sixty years before. But bless that servant. Discovered that before he passed on. But even more wonderful will be the day when we stand before the Lord. And this person, and that person. Folk that we just had a wee chat with, or somebody that we did something for. And, and, and graciously went about, or we sat with and had a cry with, or whatever. And in that way in which is beyond our comprehension, ah, oh, it's you. Do you remember that we chat, that we saying, that word? The Holy Spirit took that and used that. And I met with Jesus. And that's why I'm now standing with you at the throne of grace. Is that not your desire, brothers and sisters, this morning? Is that not your longing? Is that not our aspiration? Is that not our purpose and our goal? It was for the disciples. And it should always be for the church. Jesus, your name is power. Jesus, your name is might. Jesus, your name will break every stronghold. Jesus, your name is life. Let's stand and sing this together as it all. Oh, come, O oh Holy Spirit, and bring to us afresh that awareness of who you are, the risen, conquering Son. Fill us with that fresh perspective as to what truly is important and matters in this our life and our living. And take these gifts and own them and use them for your kingdom purposes, we pray. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.